I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. Pursuit peeps, I have missed you, but today we are back and we're ready to inspire and motivate you again on a weekly basis. And I'm super excited to kickstart our return with one of the most incredible and charismatic athletes I've had the honor to interview. When she was just 19 days old, Mackenzie Cohen was diagnosed with a condition called osteogenesis imperfecta, also known as brittle bone disease. This condition causes her bones to break very easily. And as a result of this diagnosis, doctors said that Mackenzie would never walk, would never sit upright, would never talk, and maybe not even live a very long life. However, Mackenzie's parents were determined not to have their daughter live a life dictated by other people's expectations. So Mackenzie's journey in the water started with aqua therapy at four years old. And today, she is a three-time U.S. Paralympian, a six-time Paralympic medalist, including four gold medals, an eight-time world champion, and a current world record holder. Right now, Mackenzie is competing at the World Para Swimming Championships over in Manchester, Great Britain. So make sure to follow her after the episode to cheer her on. Mackenzie's journey captivates the very meaning of believing that anything is possible when you put your mind to it. Through every broken bone, every setback, every obstacle, Mackenzie has never lost hope and neither should you. You'll hear Mackenzie mention a lot of great mindset skills throughout this episode that have really helped her along her journey. And if you want to start harnessing your mental game like Mackenzie, but you're not sure where to start, I've created a brand new free guide with the top 10 mental skills that every athlete must have. It's a checklist, a guide, and a self-assessment all-in-one to help kickstart your journey to confidence. Go grab your free copy over at laurawilkinson.com skills. That's laurawilkinson.com skills. Before we get started, make sure you smash that subscribe button and give Pursuit of Gold a five-star review. And please tell your friends about this podcast so that we can continue to improve and grow to that next level, bringing you more resources, tools, and inspiration. All right. I believe there's gold in your future. So let's dive on into this episode. Mackenzie Cohen, welcome to the Pursuit of Gold podcast. I am so excited to dig into your incredible story today. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. I'm like geeking out. I love, I love as soon as you popped on, even before we started recording, you were just so excited and giddy. And I'm like, this is going to be such a great conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. It'd be so much fun. Well, tell us a little bit. I know you are leaving, you said, for your fifth world championships in just 19 days from the time we're recording this. But I want to back up to the beginning. Your story starts when you were a baby. So walk us through this condition that you were diagnosed with and how everything kind of began for you. So I was actually born with a broken femur, which, of course, is very not normal. And so right off the bat, doctors and my parents obviously were very perplexed by that, but they kind of chalked it up to the umbilical cord, maybe getting wrapped around my leg and just getting unlucky and having a fracture. So I was born, I spent a couple of days in the hospital. They put a cast or wrap, whatever they could put on a newborn baby to try to stabilize the fracture. So I was allowed to go home and, you know, obviously my parents were told to monitor it and other things like that. But a couple of days after I arrived home, my mom was actually up to three o'clock in the morning burping me and she heard what she can only describe as like a chicken bone snapping, like that kind of sound. 
And I actually had a broken arm. They had no idea. And so they took me back into the hospital. And when I was 19 days old, they took a skin biopsy from me. And from that, they were able to tell my parents that I had osteogenesis imperfecta, which I mean, imagine trying to say that when you're really young, (laughs) a big complicated mixture of words. That means I have brittle bones that often break for little to no reason. So it was very odd. Many of times people with OI have a family history of it that they can kind of trace, but I was very different. I was what they would call a spontaneous mutation. So I've always believed this. I am completely the way I am because it was just meant to be. Wow. So, I mean, what does that mean for your family right off the bat? Like, what were they told? Like, that this was just going to be something to deal with? Like, was there anything they could do? I can't imagine, like, your parents' reaction. Like, that's just a lot to take in. Very unexpected. Yes, absolutely. I asked them this a lot. I, I wrote a book about two years back. So it was really cool. I've heard a lot of the stories from my parents before, but as an adult, being able to go back and ask them questions about what that period of time was like is just the craziest thing. And, and they looked at me and they said, well, how would you feel if you're holding you know, your newborn baby girl and they have the results of a skin biopsy and are telling you as new parents that your baby, the only other case that they had ever seen of osteogenesis imperfecta, passed away. And then not even that, if she does live, then she will never be able to sit, hold her head up on her own, crawl, stand, walk, just this never-ending list of things that I would never do. And I couldn't imagine what that felt like, but I am very blessed. My parents are incredible. They have always supported me in every crazy thing I've ever wanted to pursue. So shout out to my parents. They're amazing. But you know, I got really lucky and they didn't believe those doctors when they said that she's never going to amount to anything and they weren't going to allow that to become our mindset or our reality. So everything that I've ever wanted to pursue, we faced head on with the good, the bad and the ugly, believe me. I love it. Oh my goodness. I love your parents' attitude. Like, nope, we're just, we're not buying that line. We're going to create our own path. Like, that's so cool. So what did they start doing? Were they seeking like alternative help? I I can't imagine as a tiny baby, like even really knowing what to do. Because once you're older, you know, and you can, you can move around, you can do some things maybe like, how does that even begin? Yes, that was, that was one of my biggest questions. Like, you know, you got this diagnosis you know, what did you do when I was that tiny and that fragile? And, you know, a baby can't tell them what's wrong. So if I fracture, I might cry and everything, but you just never know what it is. So when I was six months old, they got the okay from our orthopedic surgeon at the time to go ahead and take me into PT. And from six months old to about four years old, two to three times a week, you know, we actually, I grew up in a very small town in Clarksville, Georgia. So rural Northeast Georgia. We didn't have access to really big healthcare facilities and things like that. So we would drive one way, two hours to get to PT. Can you imagine like doing that two to three times a week? Like my parents put everything they had, all of their energy and time and everything into this. So I was going to PT and we were really doing whatever we possibly could to kind of stimulate movement in me. And, you know, get my joints moving and everything. The number one thing you want to do, and I've learned this as I've gotten older, when you have a condition like OI, the last thing you want to do is be stiff because being stiff often leads to more fractures. So that's actually why the water is such a saving grace for me, even to this point now, you know, I'm 27 years old. 
I barely ever spend a day outside of the water for that very reason. Wow. That's fascinating. I mean, do you ever feel like you burn out because of that though? Like, you you know what I mean? Because as as an elite athlete, like you also need rest, you know what I mean? So how, I guess, or is it just... Totally. Yeah. What does that look like for you? So after I turned four and that's when they suggested that my parents get me in the water for aqua therapy. So that's actually how my time in the water really started. My brother's on the swim team. And then not long after that, I was totally just, I'm not going to be in the baby pool anymore. That's what I told him. And so I went to join the swim team with my brothers. Typical Mackenzie fashion. Is it just you and one brother? Um, So I actually have two brothers. You'll love this. I'm the middle child, which just makes it all the more better. (laughs) I love my brothers, but I'm definitely a middle child. I was just so like my older brother, my younger brother over there. And I just don't understand why I'm over here. So Right off the bat, I was always like very motivated. But before and even during all that motivation and everything to to join the swim team, I just had this really general love for the water. And I can't really describe it because I was so young when I did start aqua therapy. But being in the water felt like my absolute freedom. I felt free from some of the constraints I had on land and always having to be so careful not to fracture or move a certain way. I truly found my place in the water. I felt more like I belonged in the water than I did on land, really. A true mermaid. <laughs> exactly. And I, I really Laura, I really thought I was a mermaid. I'm not even kidding. I thought I was. And to this day, I will say this, you know, being an elite athlete, obviously we know comes with a lot of challenges, a lot of mental hurdles sometimes, you know, you're sore, you're tired. Sometimes it, it's not always pretty. You don't want to go to practice. But one thing never faded, and that was just my general love of the water. And it's given me so much more. You know, I love my sport, but it's given me so much more than just a sport. So even if I'm, if it's like a lazy Sunday, because Sundays are the only days I have off from like training, I'll go get in a pool and just kind of float around just to kind of feel that again. That's so cool. So even just nice, easy days, not necessarily all hardworking days, right? (laughs) Oh, definitely. If I'm going to be honest, if I didn't have a Sunday or like a a day off, I love my Sundays. It would be so difficult, like the mental aspects of everything. But it's also interesting because not only do I need to be in the water for my body, even on like a random Sunday, just floating around, but I feel like that connection with the water besides kind of that deeper meaning there also just like refreshes me and gets me ready for like the next week, if that makes sense. So I feel like you can always still find me there. Well, there's that exercising that releases all the right hormones and things right in our brains or releases the right, all the right chemicals, I guess, you know, and just like you said, the connection with the water there. And I I love that it just gave you that freedom. So you found your way into the big kid swim team pool because that's where you belonged. But, but at what point, like, did you start racing right off the bat? Were you like, there's no way my brothers are going to beat me? Or like, how did this kind of develop into a competitor? Oh, let me tell you, the competitor mindset was definitely there from my like very first day on the team. But in order to join the swim team, I think this is the really funny thing. I think my mind was already committed and ready to like win and do the work before my body really even understood how to swim properly, if that makes sense. Mm, I feel like I can relate to that. (laughs) Yes, yes. And mentally, I, okay, personally, I really love a challenge. That might sound kind of weird. Sometimes people like in the middle of challenges and things find maybe some of the harder things to harp on and they don't realize kind of the beauty of 
uh, I don't know if this will make sense, but like getting through the challenge itself. And I've always really loved that. I love that sort of thing. So when I told my mom, I want to join the swim team and she was all into it. She told me, she looked at me, you know, I'd done aqua therapy, but I'd always done it with a life jacket on. And she said, okay, well, you have to be able to swim one lap without the life jacket on. Keep in mind, I had never done that before in my life. I had never been in the water alone without my life jacket and I was committed to it. So they basically like dropped me in the water. She brought the head coach and the assistant coach over and I'm not even going to lie. That was like the hardest lap of my life, but I made it. And then I just kind of kept going. I think I swam like seven laps before I got out. So my mind was already in it. I was up for the challenge. Physically, I wasn't. So I started the swim team on like the lowest tier level you possibly could. And I'll never forget my first day. I wanted so badly to be competitive and already where the other kids who have done it for months or years were already at. And I was just looking around and I was like, I really hope I get there one day, but this is something that I can overcome and I can do that and be at their same level. So right off the bat, mentally, I was there. Physically, I kind of had to catch up. I love that thought process, though, because I was actually talking to an athlete the other day that was saying, yeah, some of these newer athletes are coming on and they're already like ahead of me or they're passing me and it's frustrating to watch. And it's like, I get that, but like, we're all on a different path. We all get there at a different time. Like I started, I didn't start my sport until I was 15. Like I, I did something beforehand, but I didn't start diving until I was 15. So we're all on a different path and it's hard sometimes mentally when we're seeing all these people where we want to be, but we're not there and we're comparing their journey to ours and it's totally different. So I love that you were like, okay, that's somewhere I can get to. I just need to find my way to get there. <laughs> exactly. I, I love that. I always, even to this day in sports psych, this is so funny, but we often talk about my mind is usually like 50 steps ahead of the rest of me. <laughs> so sometimes I have to like catch up. Well, is that that's an interesting point? Like, is that hard for you? Like, do you have to recognize that and kind of like check yourself? How do you ground yourself in that? Or, or do you just let your mind keep going and expect your body to catch up? I definitely have learned along the way. So I started doing sports psych on the regular after the 2016 games in Rio. I had gone and I had truly had like the meat of my life, you know, walked over medals and I was really psyched, but I came home and lo and behold, I did definitely experience the kind of post Olympic blues and my mind was already 50 steps ahead. You know, I had just left Rio and now I'm already looking forward to the next four years in Tokyo and what that looks like. So I started working with sports psych and we really had to find kind of like a good middle ground because I think it is really good to have your mind already set in what your next goal might be or, or achieving the goal that you're just starting to work towards now. But I had to learn kind of like a healthy balance with that, that, okay, it's good to have goals in front of me. It's good to chase the things that I want, but I also really had to learn how to live in the moment. And that was really important for me is kind of the piece of staying present. And it helped me tremendously on my road to Tokyo, that kind of mental presence every day while still keeping in mind the things that I wanted, but keeping everything kind of just a little bit more chill. I love that. That's so good. Yeah. Staying in the moment is so key. I, I love that you're just putting all the pieces together, but let's back up. So you bulldozed your way onto the swim team and you were just on it. So when did you discover kind of that the Paralympic Games were a thing, that that's something you could do? Like, when did that all develop? Yes. Yeah, so I was on the swim team for about two or three years at this point. I was about nine years old and I was at a swim meet. I had swam the 500 free, 
and I, I did it for like the first time and anyone who swims a 500 free for the first time, it is like terrifying. It is just 20 laps. That's like a monster event. Yeah, it is. And for a nine-year-old, like I was so scared, but I ended up loving it. I had a blast and that is literally the beginning of my distance freestyle career. I always think back on that and laugh. I was approached by two officials after the race and as a swimmer, it's never good when officials are coming up to you after you swim. Like it usually means you're disqualified. So here I am thinking to myself, how in the world did I just disqualify myself? And not only the easiest stroke really to not get disqualified, but also 20 laps of it. If someone's going to do it, I'm going to do it. Let me just put that out there. But they came up to me and luckily I wasn't DQ'd. I was like hiding behind my mom as they were like walking up. I was in my little pink wheelchair hiding. And um, they started talking to my mom about the Paralympic Games. I'm going to be honest with you. We knew nothing of the Paralympics. Knew about the Olympics. I think we had just watched the Athens 2004 Games. We were at like a state championships meet. And that was really cool. That was like my first kind of memory or recognition of the Olympic Games. And uh, they came up to me and started explaining it. It just sounded amazing. So I went home that night and me and my mom got on the computer And we learned all kinds of things like the Paralympic Games, para meaning parallel to the Olympics, you know, same elite level sporting competition. It just so happens it's for persons with a disability, but it's held in the same venue, same four-year cycle. But the thing that really struck me that, you know, I've been swimming for a couple of years now, I was used to not having anybody on the pool deck look like me. And it didn't really bother me because I loved being able to prove people wrong, like having other kids size me up as I rolled behind the block and they walked up behind the block. I loved being the underdog of sorts. But for the first time in my life, I saw athletes who had a disability who looked like me with gold medals around their neck and, you know, our national anthem playing and the flag behind them. And I realized that this dream is a possibility for me. And I don't know what struck me. I don't know the guts I had to turn to my mom and say this, but I turned to her in that moment and I said, mom, I'm going to win a gold medal one day. And in typical Mama Cohen fashion, she said, okay, how do we get there? So I truly had no idea what it was, did our research. And the very next week I was looking for adapted sports programs in Georgia to go join and start competing in Paralympic sport. It was so quick and just so amazing. Wow. That is really cool. I love that too, because the first time I saw the Olympics, I was about eight years old also. And so like, there's something about that age, I think too, where it can quickly capture our imagination and our excitement and, and let us dream. And I, I love that you just you and your mom just dove all in, like just like when you were little, like, and she was like, okay, we're going to find a way to do this. We're going to get PT, whatever we need to do. And now she's like, all right, how do we get there? How do we get to the Paralympics? So was it always going to be like swimming is my sport or were you willing to try other things or was swimming just the best for your condition? So that is okay. So I, you know, I had started with aqua therapy and then joined the swim team, but one of the requirements for Paralympic sport I did like kind of the junior nationals level when I first started and every year they had junior nationals in a different place. But one of the requirements of that competition, regardless of whatever sport that you qualified in, you actually had to go and try another sport while you were there. That was one of the requirements to compete. And yes, so I was like, wow, okay. I've never really done anything other than swim competitively. Like I would go with my brothers and my mom we would play like tennis and I'd be in my wheelchair and that was really fun, but I didn't do anything else seriously, right? 
So we go and well, a couple weeks before I told them that I would try track and field, but only the field part. My mom didn't want me competing on like the track events in those wheelchairs because they, they crash a lot and not good for brittle bones, right? Exactly. I had actually begged to do wheelchair basketball, but actually they, they crash even more. So I was told no on that one. They're rough. So I decided I would do field. Some of those team sports get rough. <laughs> They're a little crazy. It is rough. It is wild to watch entertaining, but it is brutal. So I decided that I would try field. And I remember we bought a little javelin, a shot put, like whatever we could get our hands on. And I would actually practice in our front yard after we come home from swim, swim practice. So if I was going to do this, even if it was a requirement, I was going to get my all in it, right? So I'll never forget this. We go to like the first day of the field meet at Junior Nationals and everything's going really well. I actually broke an American record in like the shot put for the classification they put me in. It was so great. Everything was going really well. Well, then it was time to throw the javelin. I kid you not. I will never forget this. I threw the javelin and I actually hit one of the volunteers with it <gasps> and they had to have medical attention. Are you serious? Oh my I'm not even kidding. I have never apologized so profusely in my life. My mom comes up and she goes, oh, like this could only, you could literally only do this. How did this happen? You have a field, an entire field. So that's the day that I learned that maybe just other sports weren't meant for me because I literally, when I tell you, I am simply not meant to do anything outside the water. That is the day that I decided that I had a lot of fun trying something else, but they ended up being okay. But that will follow me for the rest of my life. It's so funny to look back on. They were, they were okay. I'll add that again. I have to ask two questions. Where did you stab the volunteer? <laughs> Where did they get hit? Yes, right on the leg. Okay. I like to think that it grazed them, though there was some blood. So... After that day, no one, if I wanted to continue field, I would never have been allowed to really do it again anyway. So that was the end of my stellar field career and the American record. And then it got broken later that day. I learned that I held for like three hours. So that was pretty magical. Hey, you held it for three hours. That's still legit. You had a record. That's good. <laughs> That's so awesome. Thank you. Thank you. I like to think I was a dual sport athlete at one point in time. There you go. And I have to say, man, that volunteer needs to pay a little better attention. <laughs> you know, maybe they had some... Uh... Thank you. <laughs> yes. And they were a little distracted maybe in the moment. So they need to take some ownership on that one. I appreciate that. Because, you know, I feel like even if my aim was completely <laughs> off, someone had to see it coming. Someone. <laughs> oh, man, that is epic. Oh, you are just full of great stories. Well, OK, so I have to ask, like, as someone in, with your condition, I'm just going to call it brittle bones because I don't think I'm going to pronounce it as beautifully as you say. What is it? Osteogenesis imperfecta. See, I have, it, I have to have it written down to see it. Trust me, it is a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> you say it so eloquently. But with this disease, and like you said, fractures are easy, but you're swimming all the time, which, which I'm guessing gives you some strength and you said helps you not stiffen up. But like, how often are breaks happening? Like, how painful is this? This has got to be excruciating. Like, do you live with a lot of pain on a regular basis? I would say the biggest challenge of OI is just the fact that you just never know when a fracture is going to happen. Like I can literally do everything in my power to be as careful as possible and just still end up fracturing sometimes for no reason. But along with that, I have learned really incredible coping skills. And 
the people that I've surrounded myself with, my parents, my coaches, my doctors have all played a very big role in that for me. And in addition to that, I have an incredibly high pain tolerance that I built up, which is definitely not a bad thing. Is that elite athlete syndrome? (laughs) Oh, yes, exactly. Sometimes I think about it and I'm like, okay, the other day you just survived 10 400s and that pain is unbearable by the end. So you can survive this. Thank you, swimming. But it definitely comes with the territory to have a high pain tolerance, which is actually a challenge in itself sometimes because if I pop something or move the wrong way and I have a little bit of pain, it's not a big deal. But I also don't know if, okay, did I pull a muscle or did I actually fracture something? So those are the times I have to be a little bit more careful. But the fractures come a lot. I actually just had one a few months ago in my knee. I think it was like two or three small fractures. And sometimes when it's something small, like I I say this, but like an ankle or shoulder or something, if it's a manageable pain, sometimes I won't even go in and get an x-ray or get it looked at just because I would literally live at the doctor's office. And I joke sometimes I've had so many x-rays that I'm literally radioactive now. So anytime I can like cut back on that is a good thing. But you definitely live and you learn as you get older dealing with something like brittle bone disease is a lot easier because I know not to do some of the silly things I did as a child. Like, let me just put it this way. Surfing on the hardwood floor and socks is probably not the best idea. And seven-year-old Mackenzie learned that the hard way. But you definitely live and learn. And a lot of those experiences have led to me understanding what is good for my body and what isn't, which has certainly helped me in my swimming career be able to advocate for myself. I'm very lucky that I've had very good experiences with my coaches and my current coach, Ron Loeffler, I've been with him since I started swimming collegiately at Loyola in Baltimore, but he has really, since 2014, let me kind of use my voice and tell him how I'm feeling or what we're going to do if I do have a fracture. Let's say I have a femur fracture. When I'm ready to get back in and just start pulling, we can do that. So I think learning how to advocate for myself was really important. And then also strength training. Let me tell you, if there has been a challenge in my career with learning my, not like limits, but (laughs) breaking points, love that. It has truly been strength training, which has come with a lot of lessons along the way. And a lot of different ways to do things. I've had to learn that I can lift weights, but they have to be smaller. I just do higher repetitions. So if I can learn how to substitute something, that's excellent for me. I guess that's the beauty of adapted sports. Substitute and adapt it to what you need, really. No, I think that's awesome. And strength weight training is is really good for your bone density, right? Is that helpful for you? Like, do you ever see improvements in that? Or is that something that won't change? Yes, it's really, really excellent for me in terms of, I think like back in 2019, that was really around the first time that I started going all in on my kind of lifting and and how to do that. I think there was definitely a fear for a little while, even in college when I was competing collegiately, I didn't really lift much. I maybe did one day a week and it was half the time of all the others. So I really, in 2019, I kind of hit a point in my swimming where I was like, okay, I feel like I've hit a wall and now I need to start looking at all the things outside of the water that I could do differently. And I kid you not, I literally looked at it as a risk. And I thought to myself, okay, well, 
there's really nothing more I can be doing in the water to get better. I've, I've hit a wall and I can't train any harder than I am. So this is one area outside the pool that I think I really could improve on. And so I started going two or three times a week, like full on committed to lift outside of swimming. And when I tell you the way that my body felt, I mean, I have never felt so invincible in my life, to be honest with you. Obviously came with a lot of risk. I've had like bone scans and and DEXAs, whatever, and things like that. There's not really any proof that it improved anything. But I tell you just even that overall feeling of strength that I had, even without a scan telling me things, I... 100% think it helped my body and continues to. And as I've gotten more and more into it and and I understand my body even more, it just keeps getting better and better. To be honest with you, I don't even think as an athlete I've peaked yet because I still think I can be better. I love that. You're after my own heart here. You're speaking my language. What now? Did you have a really good strength training coach that was teaching you these things or were you having to kind of go on your own to see what you could do and figure it out like your own way. I haven't really talked much about this part of my life, but I started going in in 2019. I got a membership at like a gym down the road that actually one of my national team friends, she was training out with one of the trainers and I didn't say a whole lot when I went in. I kind of just came in alone and I would see her there sometimes. I'd talk to her. And so that's how I got to know the staff there. They also had a PT clinic inside of there. So the more that I started talking with them and getting more comfortable with them, I still wasn't working with them yet. I I definitely wasn't convinced. Not anything against them. It was just, am I ready to let other people in on this? And do I feel comfortable working my body with people who haven't been around OI, right? So I would go into the PT clinic and talk to them. And probably a couple weeks into my little membership, my little solo adventures there, I started working with a member of the PT staff and a member of the gym staff to put together a plan. And I would go in the first couple of times that we did this and just do movements and they would be able to watch my body move. And then we pick up different weights. And when I tell you, I wasn't even like lifting the weight. We were just seeing, okay, what are my shoulders doing when I even do like a curl up, you know, like, what does that look like? So a lot of time, effort and planning went into it before I even started or considered starting my first session with them. And they were so incredibly fantastic. Unfortunately, the practice and one of the trainers I worked with moved away since then, but they were so accommodating and patient with me. And I can't imagine what that took for them to do seriously, but they truly changed my life and showed me that I could be confident in the gym and I could be safe and get a good workout and job done. I absolutely love that. And I love that they took their time with you to figure out, yeah, exactly like you said, how your body's moving to make sure things would be smart and safe and to have a good plan. That's so, so cool. And you just kind of went out and tried it kind of on a on a whim. Like, I love that. Like, we need to be bold. Like, athletes listening, like, think what you did, Mackenzie, I think was so great. Like, you're like, okay, I am tapped out in my actual swim training and everything that I can do here. What more can I do? Because I know I can get better, you know? And so a lot of times we think, well, if we're just doing X, Y, and Z or whatever my coach tells me, that's enough. But like, usually there's something more that can be done. You know what I mean? And if we really have that drive and we really want to become all that we can be, we have to be willing to like be honest with ourselves of like, what all are we doing? Are we actually turning over every stone? Is there anything we're missing? Like we need to be more than just physical. We need to be wise with what we're 
we're doing, right? To make not just our bodies the best, but yeah, but get our, our minds ready and be completely like you were doing weights, you're doing sports psych, like the whole package here. I love it. Exactly. Now, your first try at the Paralympics was for 2008, right? And you were itty bitty. Yes. Oh my goodness. I was the teeniest, tiniest competitor there. I was barely 11 years old when I went to trials for Beijing. And let me tell you, that was actually the first time that I ever wore a fast skin. Oh, really? Like one of the racing suits in competition. It was. It was the first time. I was so nervous. I remember standing at the end of like the long course pool. And of course I'd swam long course many times before, but it just looked so much longer. And I was finally competing my 400 free, like on the big stage. I was so happy, but so nervous. I can't even imagine. I have an 11 and 12 year old daughters and I, I can't imagine them being at that level for anything like they would just. Yeah, I just can't imagine seeing my little kids at that kind of level like that's. But then, you know, this is your whole life. It's you're old in your mind, I'm sure. But how did it go? Like, how did you compete? Did you compete nervous? Did you do great? Like, how was that experience as a tiny little 11 year old? I remember the first event I swam at that trials was the Hunter Fly. And I felt really, really nervous and just a little bit. It's so kind of cute looking back on it now because I I actually did come really close to making that team. Oh, really? It's kind of insane. Yes, it's kind of insane to think about now. I came really close to the 100 backstroke, actually. But I almost felt like you'd said, I felt like I was so much older than I actually was. I thought, you know, I can handle this. I am 11 years old. I'm basically an adult. So I can go out there and do this. I I have a fast skin on for the first time. Like watch out world. Big deal. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. I really felt like I could do this. So my hunter fly was my first event. And I feel like I really got the nerves out there and then just the general nerves for like the 400 free, just the, you know, getting it through your mind that you do eight laps still at that age was like ugh, a little scary, but I really had the best time. I will never forget at the end of those trials they had, so like Paralympic trials is a little bit different than Olympic in terms of naming the team. So automatic first and second in each event don't qualify. It's all based on world rankings, which is kind of difficult because even when you are at a U.S. Paralympic meet, you're still competing against the entire world, even if they're not in the lanes next to you. It's all in like this computer database. It's brutal. On um, the day after the last day of the meet, they bring everybody in for a meeting and they sit you all in this really big auditorium at whatever facility you're at and they name the team. So no one is really for sure of their place until they go. And you need to hear your name in that meeting. I'm not kidding. Those are some of the scariest, like those moments I think have taken years off of my life. Just to be honest, they're joyous and everything, but it's scary. Well, and I want to hear more about that because we had with diving, we went through a time where they switched from just objective, the top people at trials make it to the selection procedure where we just got emailed whether we were on the Olympic team or not. It was brutal. It was like the worst thing ever. And I'm glad they've changed and gone back to the way it should be. But it was awful. And being in that, like just the room with our team, finding out who made it and who didn't was horrendous. Like, what is that room like? Because I'm sure people are ecstatic and people are devastated. I can't even imagine email. Oh my gosh, that is just so scary. So it's interesting because everyone walks in with this incredibly nervous energy and it's dead silent. 
every single time I've been through it, it's dead silent. People are just kind of very nervously looking around the room. But there's also like this quiet excitement, I think, or at least I've always had of like what could be possible and what could happen in that room. And it might be because I've just tried to focus on positive outcomes or like a a positive thinking that things are going to go well. And maybe that's just to keep my nerves at bay. But it is the most gut-wrenching thing in the world when you're sitting there and, you know, I experienced it in 2008, even though I was young and I was not expected to make the team and everything, when my name wasn't called, it's still like a hard feeling. But four years later, for the London 2012 games, when my name was called, I remember I took a moment and I, they actually had to call my name twice because I just sat there. I, I truly couldn't believe it. I was gripping my mom's hand and they go, Mackenzie Cohen. And then they go, Mackenzie, that would be you. So I like went down there and everything and joined the rest of the members as they were adding them. But here I am being chosen for this team. And I'm standing down there and I'm looking at people in the crowd, national team teammates, right? Whose name did not get called. And that is the most strange feeling in the entire world. Because here I am on cloud nine, so happy. I know everything that I've had to do to get to this point. And I'm so proud of myself and so thankful for the people who got me here. But then I'm looking at all the people out there who I know have worked just as hard as me, if not even harder, and they don't get to go do this with us. That is absolutely heartbreaking. So I think there's never going to be like an easy way to select a team or to tell people that their dream is not going to come true at that point in time. But I tell you, I can still like look inside my soul and see their faces. And it, it bothers me to this day. It's just something I feel like you never really get over. And what, what are you going to say? You know, what did people say to me in 2008? You can't fix it. Exactly. So that is the brutal side of sport right there. Yes, for sure, man. It's like the agony of defeat and the triumph of victory all there in the same like 10 feet of space. <laughs> you know, it's, ooh, that's tough. Oh man, it, tr- yes, I can feel it. I literally can feel it right now. Well, let's move on to the happier side because that was also your 16th birthday when they called your name, wasn't it? <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Yes, it was. So, you know, I, I went into the London trials. I have been through, oh my God, like just so much between 2008 and 2012. Actually at the end of 2008, I had a surgery. I had metal rods in my femurs. And I've had them in since I was like two years old. And every couple of years when I was growing, I would have to get them replaced. And 2008 was my last kind of replacement surgery before I stopped growing. But in December of that year, I had probably the toughest medical thing I've, I've ever been through in my entire life to this day. In that surgery, my legs became infected. I lost a ton of blood. And for a week after that surgery, I was actually in the ICU. I can just remember bits and pieces. And you know, when something kind of traumatic happens, I don't know why you just kind of take bits and pieces of what you were thinking or noises or things that you heard. I was on breathing machines and everything, but I was fully aware of what was going on in the room at times. And I can just hear like all these doctors coming in and out. Some were saying to my parents, you know, she very well might not make it out of this. You need to prepare yourselves. I just can fully remember this one moment, just thinking to myself, there's so much in this life that I haven't gotten to do yet. There's so many things in the water 
that I want to experience and I know I'm good enough. I know I can get there. I know I can do this. If you'll just like, let me have like, just praying for just one more chance, you know, let me come out of this. Okay. So I literally took those moments in 2008. Luckily, you know, I came out of that. I healed fully. It was truly amazing. But I took those moments in 2008 and I lived that, that kind of promise every single day to 2012. I took those things that I was thinking to heart. So I put everything I had into swimming. I had probably more fractures though between 2008 and 2012 than I'd ever had in my life. I hate to even call it a setback each one because I think there's always something through the adversities we go through that we can learn about during it and on the other side of it. And there's always a purpose to everything. Kind of the way that I've chosen to live and a lot of it was because of that time is that the things that happen to us either become things that happen to us or things that happen for us. That's up to you to decide in the moment. And that's how I had to live. So going into 2012, I had so much more life experience under me and I had never worked truly so hard in my entire life, just in a general sense in the water, but also working to get through things. So here I am in 2012, you know, the first day of competition is literally my 16th birthday. And it's also my best event, the 400 freestyle. And I'm just thinking to myself, everything I've been through in the last few years has led me to this moment. This is my time to go out and show them how strong I am. Earlier that year, I made my first national team. You know, everything was looking like this is it for me. So I go out in the 400 free. When I tell you I had one of the worst swims of my entire life, in that 400 free like prelims, it was so, so bad. And when I got out of the water, I remember I didn't look at my time because as an athlete, you know, sometimes you can just feel like that wasn't my best. And sometimes you don't even need to look like, you know, so I got out of the water. I didn't know what my time was, but I knew it wasn't great. So I finally went and I looked at the sheet and I saw my time and I was like, that is not going to cut it. That is not what I have been working towards. That is not what I'm expecting coming off of years of sacrifice and adversity. I had got to do better. So I went back and had one of those very uh, kind of hard moments with myself in between sessions. I qualified for finals, but I really had to look at myself and be like, what just happened out there? And to tell you the truth, I thought way too much during the entire thing about things that I could not control. The outcome the fact that I'd been through so much in the last four years that it had to be this moment, just thinking all the wrong things, right? So I had to literally like rewire my brain for that final swim that night and, and get my head on straight. How did you do that? Yeah. How did you rewire your brain? What did you think about? It was really difficult for me to figure out how to have a better swim that night and a better mindset. And I was really trying to wrap my head around it. It took me hours. I didn't even sleep. You know, most of the time, someone was supposed to go back and, you know, sleep between prelims and finals. I did not do that. I spent hours trying to wrap my head around this. And the conclusion that I came to was that I had to go out and swim for myself that night. Couldn't go out and swim for, you know, the years of things I've been through or for people's expectations or the pressures that I put on myself. I truly had to do it for the love of it and practice some, some real gratitude there that I was in this position. And I had this opportunity to do that that night to do something really special. And I went out there and to this day, I don't really think I can think of a race where I've had a clearer mindset and a happier heart, to be honest with you. 
I just felt so free that the only way I can compare it is the exact feeling when I was a little kid, just racing for fun at summer meets and being that happy girl in the pink wheelchair who got to do a sport she loved with all of her friends and family. That's exactly how I felt. I never felt so free. Truly embracing the moment. That is, oh, that's so beautiful. It's like you work so hard and you have this big goal, but then in that moment, you have to be able to let it all go, right? And just be free, like what you said. Exactly. It was amazing. That's just beautiful. So what was your first Paralympic Games like? So it's London. You're there. Was the experience all you hoped and dreamed of? Oh my gosh. Everything I could have ever hoped, dreamed of, and so much more. I had the absolute time of my life getting off that plane in London. You know, we had our like staging camp for three weeks in Germany. I mean, just being a 16 year old at my first games with my best friends on the national team, the stuff we got into, I tell you, I love looking back on it. Those, <laughs> those are some of my absolute favorite memories. What a fun time. But landing in London and seeing the village for the first time, I felt so alive. And looking around, you know, I have read all about people's Olympic experiences online and things and books and things I could get my hands on. But you truly don't know what it's like until you step in that village. And the coolest part to me was looking around and seeing all the athletes from all the other nations. And we're all so different. And maybe we have, you know, different political views and different this and different that and different backgrounds, but we all are coming together to do one thing and none of that matters for the next week or two. I just thought what a worldly cool experience that was. And then walking into the aquatic center and seeing like the way like the London Aquatic Center was, you know, you couldn't even see up to the top of the stands. They went so far. And just wrapping my head around the fact that here I am at 16 and I truly felt this is just the beginning for me. So when I competed in my 400 freestyle, I made it to finals. I had literally the exact opposite experience of trials. I had the prelim swim of my entire life, like drop 10 seconds, have fun with it. It was, oh my gosh, it was just such a cool feeling. So I made it to finals that night. I came out sixth overall and that crowd, you know, we're in London. So they're all the majority of them are cheering for Great Britain and things, but I kind of told myself they're all cheering for me. Like, this is for me. <laughs> I love it. And that's how I kind of like got over, you know, some of the nerves. <laughs> what a cool experience. And then I had this moment where I like looked up at the at the board up there and I saw six by my name. And you know what? I was like, this is a really good starting point. And here's where my mind, like an example, maybe my mind getting a little ahead of me, but also not afraid to like go ahead and start dreaming big. I told myself, you know what? This is the coolest experience ever. I will never forget this, but in four years, I am going to be on that podium. So I could not have had a better experience. Seriously. What a great start. And I love it. So what was the difference from London to Rio? Because in Rio, you did, in fact, end up on that podium. What, three golds and a silver? Like, that's incredible. So what was the buildup to Rio and the experience in Rio like compared to the first one? Oh, man, it was a world difference from 2012. And, you know, I say that in like good ways and bad ways. You know, some of the positives were that I had already been to a games. I knew what the experience was like for the most part. I mean, obviously, every games is different, right? But 
I had already kind of been through it once. So I had a little bit of experience under my belt, which made me feel really good. On the flip side of that, I was in a much more pressured position going into 2016. I had had a really phenomenal two years into 2016. I had started at Loyola in 2014. I was making leaps and bounds of improvements. I just felt so strong and so confident. And my world rankings were telling me that very big possibility that if I go out there and I do what I'm capable of, I will go home with a medal. Well, then I started to pay more attention to what they were saying about me on, you know, different websites and in the media and during interviews. I know I've learned so much since then, but at the time I didn't quite know not to, you know, this is one of the things that I have to do. And it's definitely not like this for every athlete, but nowadays I just find myself a little bit quieter about some of the big goals that I have because my goals are personal to me and I don't need to share them with the entire world all the time. But I didn't quite understand that, you know, back in 2016. So here I am telling people that I am aiming for that podium. I want to be at the top and everything else and trying to, you know, sound confident and prove that I am ready for this. I didn't have anything to prove to anyone, but I didn't understand that at the time. So we go to these games and I'm there, you know, taking in the experience. It's different from London and, you know, it's its own great thing. I go out on. This is my second event of the competition. My first was 100 back. I got fifth. I got to experience like going through the call room for finals. Had a phenomenal swim. Great. You know, 50 free day. I come out and, you know, I'm a distance swimmer. My coach had convinced me between 2014 and 2016 that I could become a sprinter. And I don't know if I believed him at first, but (laughs) we worked on it. So here I am. In the 50 free final, seated first, I broke a Paralympic record in the morning. Whoa. I ended up coming out with a gold medal. Whoa. In sprinting. (laughs) In sprinting. And it's actually like a big joke in my family. Like, oh, like Mackenzie, because my younger brother, Eli, swam for UNC Chapel Hill. He's team captain there, total sprinter his entire life. So it was always a joke that he taught me how to sprint. But what a funny way to come away with my first international medal and it being gold. What an incredible feeling. But, you know, I got out of the water. I went through the mix zone. Now everybody's coming at me in the media talking about me winning the triple. And I'm like, what does that mean? I just wanted to come here and have a great performance and be on that podium, right? That was my goal. So they're telling me if I go out and I win the 100 free and the 400 free, I'll be in this group of people who've done the triple and blah, blah, blah. Oh, so the media put that on you. So it wasn't in my head until it was in my head. So in a lot of ways, I think that London set me up to have a really great competition in Rio, which it was, but I learned a very valuable lesson there as an elite athlete to kind of, you don't have to listen to everything that everyone says or or play into it with the media. So it was an incredible gains, but a very educational gains for me in that way. I learned very valuable lessons there. I was very fortunate to follow through and win golds in the 100 and the 400. I'm never in a million years. Well, so how did you handle that pressure then? They put that pressure on you that wasn't even in your head, but yet you went out and did it. Like, so did it affect you in a positive way somehow? Because it sounds like it was a good idea, you know? Yes, it was a really cool idea. And I, at times I do think about it and, you know, it did kind of light a bit of a spark in me. But on the flip side of that, I think it also was like, I had this thought, my 100 free was actually the last event of those games. And 
I'm not going to lie. I was winded. I mean, you know how it is by that last day, you are just, you're tired. (laughs) You're exhausted mentally, emotionally, physically, no matter how your games is going, it's tiring. It's just long. Yeah, exactly. I get to the very last day. It's my hundred free final. And here I am. I have proven myself in all the different areas. I won the 50. I won the 400. I got a silver as our part of our four by 100 free relay. This is what I got in my head. You don't want to be the person who almost did it. Like that's exactly what you don't want to be. You don't, you don't want that to follow you for the next like, you know, four years. So that's kind of the mindset that I got in. And I, let me tell I had to get that out of my brain very quickly before I got out and swam that final. I was thinking about this literally 20 minutes before I went to the call room. So you're talking not even an hour before I'm supposed to swim this final. And I'm thinking about this. It didn't help that someone in our kind of team leadership came up to me. And I thought this was a joke initially. I had um, like these big earphones on and listened to my music. It's one of my pre-race things. I don't really talk, but I, I love music. And they came up and they pulled one of the earphones off to the side and they go, we're one gold medal behind. I think it was like Great Britain or something. I can't even remember which country. You have to go out and win this. I thought it was a joke. So I turned around with a little smile on my face, like expecting them to laugh. They weren't laughing. Like they were dead serious. And it kind of made me mad. I'm not going to lie. Like here I was doing my job and I think I'd done a pretty good job for my country and represented well. And gosh, it just hit me that I really want to go out and enjoy this last race. What am I doing here, sitting here, worrying about the trip bowl and everything else? Like, this is the last time that you will swim in Rio at these games. Go enjoy it. And that was the shift that I needed. That was all that I needed. And I went out and proved myself, but also had fun doing it, even through the excruciating pain of the last race. Wow. That's incredible. I love that just your mental strength is amazing. Like and how you you're so self-aware, like you recognize that like this is not what I need to be thinking about. Like I need to change this. I need to enjoy this. I love your awareness. And that's the Olympics you said you had the big like or the Paralympics that you had the big post blues kind of right. Like was that that one? Yes. Walk us through that and then getting ready for Tokyo and then your experience there. Absolutely. So that kind of educational piece of Rio definitely followed me home after that with the kind of post-Olympic blue situation. I was coming back in, I was starting my junior year. Yes, junior year at Loyola. And I had done everything I could to prepare, you know, obviously being an elite athlete, like we know how difficult it is in school and balance sometimes. I had done everything I could to prepare school stuff ahead of time before leaving for Rio as much as I could, but I was still coming back into classes a month late. I had missed a month of college classes. So I came back in and everything that I knew before I left Loyola was different. Like I basically came back and, you know, everyone's coming up to me and telling me how great I am and how special I am. And I didn't like, I didn't feel any different. I'm just still the same person I was. And I'm back and I'm ready to start, you know, doing my Loyola thing again and getting back to life. But nothing felt easy. Nothing felt normal. And to be honest with you, I started to kind of have this resentment. And it's just so interesting to think about. But for the last like year, I've been living in the pressure cooker, right? Everything that I did was for Rio. So I came back and I resented the laid back lifestyles of a lot of people that I was with and 
what they were able to do. And I started to think about the things I missed out on. And then plus, okay, I just came off of this high and now I'm back in reality and going to classes and trying not to make it look like I have special treatment because that's seriously not the case. I'm a month behind in school. So I would say it was a combination of just everything hitting me all at once and then having to refine my purpose again. I think I kind of lost that a little bit in the midst of all the stress and preparations and everything. It took me a good six months to kind of get back on track. And I had to seek out resources and help. I actually went to my college coach when I got back and I said, I need two weeks to figure out my life. And he was really fantastic with me, like amazing. He actually came to Rio to watch me swim, but he, I think he could just tell the look on my face was just, I wasn't there at the time. So I had two weeks to figure out my life and swimming and college classes and get back on track. But slowly but surely, I made it out of that. And I think it was a really good life lesson and something I took with me as, you know, the road to Tokyo started right after that, that swimming wasn't the end all be all, that no medal was ever going to just fix all my life's problems. You know, I'm still a human being. And I took that with me for the next year. So I graduated from Loyola in 2018. And the road to Tokyo was on fire at the time. Everything was looking really good. And I had a really successful 2019. I added in that weightlifting and I could just feel the energy. I knew that Tokyo was going to be something special and I could potentially come back and repeat as a gold medalist. I I really felt that way. So we go into 2019. I had the best year of my life, meets and times wise. And we're going into 2020 and we all know what happens, right? The world ends. (laughs) Exactly. Devastating, apocalyptic pandemic. That hit me like a train as it did the entire world and the devastating things that were happening to people. Let me tell you, it was just this feeling of how can I be so upset sitting around about not being able to swim right now when there are literally people dying? And that even put things in perspective for me again as well. And so I was, you know, training in Baltimore. I'm, um, Along with OI, I have a lot of lung problems, so I was considered really high risk for COVID. So I'll never forget this. My mom grabbed our family's Yukon, came and picked me up from Baltimore, and I went home to Georgia to kind of, you know, that rural area we were in and and be safe and everything. And there came the talk of the games being canceled or postponed or whatever they were going to end up doing with it. I remember the day that I found out the postponement was confirmed. I woke up to a text from my coach. And it was a news link to the official article, like postponement confirmed and it knocked the wind out of me. Like it truly did. It knocked the life and the wind out of me. And in that moment, I had to kind of go back to what I've learned along the way and what I've been working really hard on in sports psych was controlling the things that I could. So even though they're not happening right now, they are going to happen eventually and I need to be ready for that moment. So what can I do? So I started doing all kinds of things. I was doing dry land twice a day. I actually built a tethered pool in my parents' garage. I kid you not. I went online and I found this like eight foot tethered pool that you could build and put up. So I did that. I actually put it together backwards with my mom over the span of like three days. My dad came out there because we refused his help, right? And he goes, you know, this is on backwards, like three days of work. And I just walked away at one point and I said, maybe this isn't meant for me in my journey, but we'll try again tomorrow. <laughs> But I almost flooded the garage a bunch, but details, right? So it is a circus when I tell you like full-blown circus. So 
I was training in the garage. That was some of the hardest training I've ever done because being in that tiny pool, there's nowhere for the waves to go. It's like swimming open water every day for like two hours. It was so challenging, but I think it like really built me up going into 2020. At the tail end of 2020, they actually, we have a resident program out in Colorado at the Olympic and Paralympic Training Center. And they opened up like 10 or 12 spots for some of the national team athletes. So I applied for that and, and got in. So I ended up going out there and training. It was awesome. I, gosh, I love going out there and training out the training center. Like, it's just so nice. And I spent September of 2020 through October 2021 out there. And it was just great. So I finally had long course access to a real pool again. It was fantastic. And let me tell you that that last kind of three month stretch to Tokyo, though, was a test like no other. We were being tested for COVID every single day. And if you tested positive within 90 days, you weren't going. So I would always very nervously like sit next to my cell phone for like 20 minutes after I took the test. Just please don't call me like praying, please don't call me. So emotionally draining. It was. And the realization that I still hope, because even within a few weeks of the games, there were talks right before the Olympics started that they were going to be canceled again because of spikes in cases. And the entire time I'm, you know, we're there, it's about two or three weeks before we leave for our games. So we're watching the Olympics. I'm holding my breath, just hoping that everything goes smoothly and everyone is safe because I got in my head, what if they cancel because of the Olympics, not going well, right? So much sports psych at that point in time and, and so many resources that I had utilized to get through that. But just getting to Tokyo was the most amazing feeling in the world, even if it was still a scary situation. Dealing with all the uncontrollables and going through the airport felt very apocalyptic. We went through like seven or eight different stations to get tested and paperwork. The amount of paperwork we filled out was insane. So just all these unknowns and things, you know, I talk about Rio being a learning experience, but so was Tokyo. And dealing with all of that on top of not having our family there was so incredibly odd. You know, I had the superstition thing. Did it even feel like the Paralympics? Because like that was one of the hard things to watch was like having no crowd and no audience. Like, was that hard to perform in that your loved ones aren't there, but then nobody's there? Yes. I mean, what a like scary feeling and also very sad because the facilities were so beautiful and I would just look up at it sometimes, you know, it was a very different feeling arriving in the village for the first time. It wasn't like London or Rio. Yes, it was beautiful. And the, oh my gosh, the volunteers, the workers, so nice, so amazing. Like they put on incredible games as incredible as they could, but it was not that same like joyous feeling, if that makes sense. And I don't say that to sound depressing. It's just the truth of it. So we would go in and I look at this incredible aquatic center with all these wonderful people working it. And it's just empty. Like what a sad, terrible waste. And when I compete, I have the superstition. I don't look in the stands before I swim. It's kind of become a thing. The only thing I'm really focused on is the pool right in front of me and the job that I need to do in the moment. It's the only thing that matters to me. After I finish, I always look for my family, whether it went well or not so well. I, I need to see if I can find my family. So my um, 400 free, like my baby, my event, I go out and I swim my 400 free and I end up out touching one of my competitors and I, I won gold in it again. So here I am, a repeat 400 free gold medalist in one of the hardest times of my life, like the span of the few months going in. So much was uncertain, but I, I had done it. 
I touch the wall first and I, I won again. I go to like scan the crowd, right? Just from like, you know, habit. And it quickly hits me that there's no one in there. And my mom and dad, they did tell me something really important. When you go to look for us, look into the camera. We're like right there. I still get emotional talking about it just because it was such a like raw feeling, a a dream achieved, but no one to really, I mean, my teammates and, you know, obviously all of them like family, but my family's not there to share it with. Right. But it's not the same. Exactly. So that on top of itself was a big challenge and then everything leading into it. Rio, I learned a lot, but I also realized that Tokyo definitely taught me a lot as well. Mm, man, I, that is a whole lot of just more emotional than anything else I would think uh, dealing with all of that stuff and the unknowns. And and that's just, yeah, that's a whole other thing. So did you have kind of another like time of blues, like post-Paralympic blues after that? Or were you able to kind of bounce back a little faster because it was just this different, weird experience? So it definitely kind of hit me in a different way when I came back from Tokyo. Going into Rio was stressful, like, don't get me wrong. And then, you know, going into London, I was very young and naive and ignorance is bliss, right? (laughs) Right. And it truly was like, let me, it truly was. But coming back from Tokyo, I realized that the thing that I had to kind of shed when I got back wasn't so much the games as it was everything in the months that, you know, preceded the games. We had just, oh my gosh, we've been through the ringer. Living every day, wondering, are the games going to happen? Are they not going to happen? Took a mental toll that, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't know if all of us are still fully over yet, living in that kind of weird oblivion, if you will. So that was very difficult to work through. I definitely had to learn how to release a lot of that stress and realize that it's over. I would actually wake up in the middle of the night, and this is something that was actually echoed by other team members, actually from across other sports too, having nightmares about those games. And it's just like kind of this traumatic response. The games have been over for months, and I'm waking up having nightmares that they're over, or I'm not competing, or you know I didn't go, or whatever it might have been. So everything I had to work through after Tokyo was everything that went into even just getting there. It wasn't only the competing and and coming off of that. And the high, you know, I talked about having that, coming down from that high after Rio, that wasn't quite the same thing after Tokyo. Obviously, gorgeous facilities. I came back with a gold medal in the 400, a silver medal in the 100, really happy with my performances after everything was said and done. But it just wasn't that same high and experience that I had had in Rio. So it wasn't so much that as it was shedding all the stresses that went into it, that that entire year lead up to it, really. Wow. I hadn't heard that about the nightmares before. That is new information. That is really interesting. I'm sorry I had experienced that, but I, I hope now you're feeling good. I know you're, you said you're heading soon to your fifth world championships. That's in Japan, right? Um, yes. Yeah, so we'll have our fifth worlds. We leave and uh, my teammate told me this 19 days from today. So exciting. So they're actually going to be in in uh, Manchester in England, I'm, which I'm super excited about. I've actually never been to that pool before, but I hear such good things about racing there. So I'm feeling fast. I'm hoping for some good results, but I'm, I'm really excited. I, I truly can't believe that this is my fifth time around. I, I remember going to my first Worlds back in 2015. What a fun experience. It's like having a games without, you know, obviously there's stress and pressures and things, but being able to let go a little bit and race the best, the best in the world 
especially the year before the games, is just so much fun. A good build up to Paris, right? Truly is. Yes. I could not be more excited. So Mackenzie, you are an absolute joy to talk to and listen to. I am so jiving with like everything you're saying too. I think we're wired mentally very much the same way. Where can we follow you online to cheer you on through Worlds and through Paris next year? And where can we buy your book, Breaking Free, Shattering Expectations and Thriving with Ambition in Pursuit of Gold? Yes. So I am on Instagram and Twitter and TikTok. I'm new to TikTok, still trying to figure that out. But they're all Mackenzie underscore Cohen. So I try to keep everything updated the best I can in between training. And I love filming training videos and things. That's been my new like creative outlet lately. So I'm always on there. And then um, you can find my book Breaking Free actually on Amazon. So you can type in Breaking Free and then my name and it will pop right up. Sometimes I I tell you, I still can't even believe that I have a book out. I mean, that is just in itself a dream come true. I think I have to pinch myself sometimes, but you can find it right there. Have you added author to your bio yet? I did. That was the most exciting thing I've ever done. I released the book right before Tokyo and I remember writing that word. I mean, it had been six months of six days a week meetings and a year of preparation going into writing. So what a cool moment, really. That is so awesome. Well, Mackenzie, thank you for sharing your incredible journey and your wisdom and everything that you have learned along the way with all of us. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests and it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.